Hello and welcome. This is the beat from scratch with veteran Ugum Sinachi. This podcast gives you entry-level knowledge with the highest level of simplicity for very sophisticated debate materials. This podcast grants you access to understanding complex debate principles, to understanding complex debate formats, and it brings it all to a very basic level of communication. So join me as I welcome you into the classroom of analysis, logic, and debates every Saturday here on this podcast. Welcome to Bravo City, um, season one, episode seven of Debates from Scratch is in session. So um, today we'll be looking into more principles. Remember I told you guys when we had a peep into principles, Today, we'll be looking at a bit of philosophy in debates. So um, we'll be taking our time to zoom in on that. And I want this class to be contemplative as it is interactive. Okay, so I'll, I'll go through some of the things we've gone through before, but I'll be going through them in very unique lights, okay? Also, I'm going to be dropping, um, as I go on, I'm going to be dropping slides on the text space. So if you have access to the text space, there will be slides dropping there on the text space. Kindly just uh, follow through with those slides. Okay. So going forward, something interesting is happening right now. And I want us to look at the trolley problem. The trolley problem happens to be a, would I say, a utilitarian consequentialist type of consideration in debates. What I want to empower us with is I want us to have a look into what the trolley problem poses and how we can take advantage of that in a debate atmosphere. Trolley problem. If you look at the text space already, you should be seeing the image I have just dropped in. If you turn it open, you'll get to see the trolley problem. Okay? Let me say it in this way. The trolley problem has a classic challenge. On the train track, A and B, there are two train tracks, right? Let's take the first one, the one that is closer to the left. In that instance, somebody, there's a train track, but there's also somebody on top of the bridge under the train. Five people are tied to the train track. If you do nothing, the train will go ahead and crush those five people, right? But there is an overweight person that is standing on the bridge. If you look closely, if you push the overweight person in front of the train, it would derail the train from those five persons. But that one person, that one overweight person would die. What would you do in that situation? That is totally problem one. Totally problem two is similar. But this time, instead of pushing a fat person overboard, there's a train 
if you let the train to go on its course, it will kill four people. Sorry, five people too. It will kill five people. But if you pull a lever, if you pull a switch, which is what the other guy is there by the switch, if you pull the switch, you will derail the train. But on the second track, one person is tied. The train will not have killed five people, but would have killed one person. What are your choices? Anybody wants to answer this question? Anybody wants to take a bite? Okay, so let me let me let me say, um, am okay. I audible? Yes, very audible. So the first option looks very bad because there is an actual mother here. Like there is a potential actual mother as opposed to the second option where you just derail the train to save the life of four persons. What happened in the first one was that you committed murder, right, to uh, save some people. But then the, very, the reason why the first option is bad is because it's a running train. So there is no probability that the train might stop after eating the, overhead, uh, the overweighted person. So there is still a probability that the train can still run on to eat the five persons, which would no, make the choice. You want to assume that the weight of the fat person is sufficient to prevent, you know, that uh, train from continuing on its journey. Let's assume that the weight is sufficient to derail that person. What happens? Okay, what happened in that kind of instance is like it's to critique the action of the person who pushed the guy to fall in that train in the first instance. We look too similar to the second one anyways, but I didn't see the assuming part. Like, uh... Yeah, those two instances are the same. Okay? Okay, it's fine. Let me bring it back home. Let me paint a third instance that is not there. This was a classic debate that happened sometime in 2015 or 2017. I can't remember. But, yeah, it was 20, 2015. Yes. At the IMSU debate. That's All Nigeria University's Debate Championship 2016, 2015. At uh, IMSU. This was the motion. Please assume it with me, okay? You are in the ER. You are a surgeon in the emergency response unit. Five patients are brought into you who are in need of critical surgery. One needs a liver. One needs a kidney. One needs a heart. One needs pancreas. And the fifth one needs a spleen. In the next room, it happens to be a healthy patient who had just come in for medical checkup, whose organs happen to match that of the five car accident victims. Assuming a 100% chance of successful transplant, what would you do? Because the motion in question was this house would steal the organs of the healthy patient to save the life of the five correct victims. Reasonably, what would you do in this situation? Uh, I'm sorry, pardon. Say that again. Pardon, from the very start of the motion of the problem of the patient, I didn't quite get you very well. So if you can just help me summarize. It's all right. So there are five 
car wreck victims, car accident victims that are brought into the emergency response, the ER unit. You are a surgeon in that unit, right? Those five car uh, accident victims require a unique organ, each of them. And it happened to be that in the next room, there's a healthy patient who came in for medical checkup and his organs happened to match that of the five car accident victims. What would you do as the uh, surgeon? What would you choose to do as the surgeon? Okay, uh, let, me, let me give it a try. So as a surgeon, I, I do think if I sacrifice this one to save the other five, it is reasonable because I've saved that big number. But then you don't forget that this has been a car accident, right? Take for example, if a car knocks someone, and you try to say that it's the heart of the problem. But you see, when a car knocks someone, you can even get more damage than what is actually seen as damage. So at the end of the day, you will still save this and give them organs, but still there's a possibility of these people dying in that surgery. Then again, still there's a possibility of them healing from that injury and again dying from other sorts of injuries. So what do you decide to do? You decide to prioritize this one who's healthy and you lose the other five. That is in my own reasoning. So the truth is that whatever point, thank you very much, uh, Victor Harold from Uganda, I believe. Whatever point that uh, you choose on the spectrum, is a valid point of moral contemplation. And that is the weight. That is, that is why, you know, it is beautiful. So, for instance, let's say you say, you know what, let's take the life of the innocent, sorry, the um, uh, healthy patient to save that five car wreck victims. What you would have been doing is you're trying to amplify the benefits. You're trying to create a mass amount of um, benefits a mass amount of, of um, you know, benefits for people. So you are, you are on the line of utility, right? Then let's say you decide to say, oh, no, 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 no. Healthy patient is a healthy patient. The healthy patient did not put themselves in harm. Patient um, was not in the car wreck, and um, the, therefore the healthy patient does not deserve, you know, to be used as a means to an end. That is also fair on its own. And in that case, you're not, you know, you're not bothered about consequentialism. You are concerned about the intrinsic value of life itself. And that is a valid point on the spectrum. So I want you to know that whatever point you choose is a valid point of contemplation. But I, I don't want us to exhaust it just by the trolley problem. The trolley problem was supposed to help me start up the discussion with you. So let us look closely into consequentialism. Okay, so that's the first principle we will be looking very closely at, consequentialism. What is consequentialism, basically? Consequentialism says that actions are valuable or not, depending on the consequences. Consequentialism is just about consequences, right? The action itself does not matter to the consequentialist, but only the state of affairs from before the action and after the action. See, there's the most widespread consequentialist view is utilitarianism. That is the most widespread form of consequentialism. And we know this, right? Uh, there is Vietnam's version. There is also um, 
Mills version, and so on. Consequentialism concentrates mostly on the distribution of pleasure over pain. That is, in the case of states, it's on the basis of more welfare and so on and so forth. So when you prioritize more welfare, it doesn't matter if we can seize your land as a government or as a state, right? But if, if the, result, the resultant of seizing your land or confiscating your property because maybe we found oil underneath it and that oil can be uh, traded and we could use it for the common good, then that is a better outcome. It's a better of outcome than um, letting you have rights to your property. Okay? In consequentialism, pleasure is the only intrinsically valuable thing. And that's one thing you must note, that pleasure is the only intrinsically valuable thing and people would do whatever it takes to achieve pleasure or achieve an optimum degree of pleasure. Now, let's go into what are the problems of consequentialism. It is not just enough to say that, yeah, consequentialism is about utility, consequentialism is about going high or going high on the high end of, of uh, possibilities with regards to pleasure you could generate and all of that. Consequentialism as well is also focused on, you know, things. There are things that are problems of consequentialism. One of them, one of the biggest ones, is how do we measure pleasure? That is one of the biggest questions we could ask. In fact, you know what? Right now, I'm tempted to just hear what you guys have to say. How can pleasure be measured? Anybody, does anybody have an... on how we can measure pleasure? If you do, kindly unmute your mic and let's have this conversation. The main cause of delay in response is because we agree that there is no universal metric for the establishment of or the measure. At least we are, and this is why this is why it's a it's a problem, right? Because there is no universal metric, it makes pleasure is arbitrary, and we cannot establish. Pleasure. For instance, my degree of pleasure could be someone else's pain. Someone else's pain could be my pleasure. How could we now achieve an optimum level metric to measure pleasure across a sample population? It is tough. So that's one of the problems. So if you are debating against a consequentialist, one of your first lines of attack is how can we measure pleasure? How can we measure happiness? How can we tangibly say that this quantity of Action will provide a corresponding quantity of happiness in everybody at the same time. There is no metric for that. So that's one of the places where consequentialism has problems in its own philosophy. But secondly, even if we could measure pleasure, right, we are basing our actions on a probabilistic calculus. Let's assume that we could measure pleasure. What is the idea that we could have a metric to ensure that everybody is going to be sensing that same pleasure? It's all probability, right? Because it is not entrenched into deep-rooted maths or a feasible reality, it has a second problem. Again, consequentialism sometimes requires us to put the interests of other people before our own interests. And that is where we have a problem. 
So for instance, let's go back to the trolley problem or let's go back to the ER, the emergency response. For someone who says, okay, I'll take the life of the healthy patient in the other room to save the five accident victims. The big question now comes, what if that person whose life you want to take happens to be your mother or your brother in the other room? Do you see how we cannot use this as a metric, as a justifiable metric to weigh in on um, how we how we act because principles must have consistency. So if you must, if you say, I'll take the life of the five correct victims in the other, I'm sorry, I'll take the life of the innocent patient or the other patient, you say the life of that five correct, you must be willing to take the life in all situations. It must be a principle that you're going to adhere in, in all situations. So no special cases, no favor. That person can be the governor, that person can be your mother, that person can be your brother, that person can be your wife or your spouse. It doesn't matter to you. As long as there's a healthy patient whose organs match five correct victims, then go. So, because constitutionalism doesn't give room for it, it requires us to put the interests of others before our own, it's a problem. Our pleasure is intrinsically a good thing. You can check more of this on Nozick exper um, experience and machine experiment. Um, the, 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 the idea will be, become clearer to you, so I'm just going to leave that for you guys to research at the end of the class. So that I don't do Is there any question we are going to have or we have on consequentialism before I move into deontology? Is there? Yeah, I have a question. So I want to understand what you want to actually. Yeah, I want to understand. Are you hearing me? Am I being? Yes, you're audible. I'm having a okay. All right. All right. So my question is like this: I want to understand if by pleasure you mean like people getting happy at the end of the consequence. Right? Is that what you mean by pleasure? Like happiness that is achieved at the end of making that decision. Like for example, like in the ER, if we decided to, to sacrifice this one patient and give his organs to other five. So by pleasure, do you mean the outcome, the happiness of the outcome of the other five that will come out? Is that what you mean by pleasure? Oh, okay. So, um, sorry. I think your audio feed is um kind of meshed up. Um, if possible, could you in the text space and I'll address it going forward because I'm having like heavy reverberations from your end. I promise to take your question if you could put it up in the text space.
Okay. Thank you very much. So um, if you can check again that I have dropped in the second screenshots, whatever. You And it's on deontology, right? Um, I'm just going to give some moments to um, the, the person who's asking the questions to um, type his questions. And once he's done with that, I'll take that question and then I'll move um, forward. Okay, so um, Victor Harold asked the question. He said, is pleasure the good end result of consequentialism? Is it the happiness that the other five patients will get after the only healthy one is dead? Oh, I think there's also static on my end. Okay. Um, give me a minute. Let me fix that. My audible guys. Yes, I are very clear now. Okay, thank you very much. So I'm going to um, continue with the question. Is pleasure the good end result of consequentialism? Is it the happiness that the other five patients will get after the one healthy one is dead? Um, so Victor, I do not understand your question. Could you? Kindly uh, make the uh, voice, make use of the voice channel now. I think everything is resolved. All right. So my question was about consequentialism. You kept on talking about pleasure. 
in constitutionalism. So I don't understand what you meant by pleasure. So by pleasure, it might mean the good result that comes out of that constitutionalism that has been made at the end of the day. And I gave a, a, an example, like this one person has died, they're taking out all his organs. And the other five have been resurrected. So it's the pleasure, that good feeling, the other five are going to get always the pleasure, that, that, that good thing you have done, that you have saved five and one has died. So what did you mean by pleasure in constitutionalism? That is what I wanted to understand. Okay, thank you very much. Now I get you. In consequentialism, the idea of pleasure is about the good outcomes, positive outcomes, you know. Um, some some um, propounders of the, of the theory uh, of consequentialism say um, the, the outcomes with the highest utility. That's the word for it. So pleasure could be measured in maybe actual pleasure or happiness or utility or any of these words could be used interchangeably. And this could mean, yeah, the utility that, um, of course, the effectiveness of saving five people at the expense of one person, um, the, ex the, um, the considered happiness of having, say, more people enjoy the dividends of democracy, even if that meant that the government had stolen the rights or forcefully obtained the rights to those properties from one person, you know, where the government encroaches into people's lands to create roads for every other person, you know, the idea that this road will lead to, like a lot of people will use this road so it has created happiness or utility in some sense. So that is the idea of happiness or pleasure I was talking about with regards to consequentialism. Do you get it, sir? So did you, did you get me, sir? Okay, beautiful. I saw in the text piece where you, uh, you said, well explained. Yes, you got me. So that is great. That's, that's, that's that for consequentialism, right? I want us to... go in a second tough concept or equally beautiful philosophy like I like to put it and that is Am I audible? Okay, for now. Okay, for now I'm audible, right? Yes, sir. Beautiful. So, deontology, like I said before, 
it's about rule-based ethics, right? Ethical inclinations that are rule-based are mostly deontological. In fact, the idea of deontology assumes that there is an existence of a law, right? There's an existence of a lawgiver. So it's, it's kind of with regards to the ontology. So few things I would like us to note in the ontology. Remember when I said before about the continuing um, deontological ethics, where he said you should ask, act so as to treat humanity, whether in the statics are back. Okay. Mm -hmm. Guys, can we take a five minute break so that I could fix the static? Um, I'm having like the letter. Director. So in deontology, we are talking about rule or duty-based ethics. Like I said, according to Immanuel Kant, you are to act as to treat humanity, whether in your own person or in another, always as an end, never only as a means. So generally, this is about treating people as a end in themselves, not a means to an end. In deontology, certain actions are wrong, no matter the context or the consequences. Okay? Nothing in the world... Indeed, nothing even beyond the world can possibly be conceived which could be called good without qualification, except a goodwill. So, according to deontology, the idea of goodwill has come into play here. And people act in certain way out of respect for the moral law. So, like, the reason why people behave the way they do most times is because of the respect they have for the moral law. Then there's also a categorical imperative that people should act only according to the maximum degree to which they would wish to become universal law. People should act only according to the maximum which they could wish to become universal law. According to deontology, a morally good action will be done for the sake of the moral law. Performing an action out of duty is what gives it moral worth. To be free 
is to be able to determine your will. So, this says that, listen, you have freedom of the will, and that means you have freedom of person in the ontology. So, act in a way out of respect for the moral law. There's this analysis I always like playing with because I learned it and it really has helped me in a number of rounds. And this is, um, I think this, this was in a classic debate between um, uh, this guy who died this, died this year, I think early this year, uh, Ravi Zacharias, and, um, and an atheist. And in debating this atheist, he said something. He asked the atheist, do you believe in like you said, everything is evil. Everything is evil. There cannot possibly be a God. And this is an instance. If you say everything is evil, everything is evil. There cannot possibly be a God. He asks the question. If you say there is evil, then you also assume the existence of good. Right? The atheists say, yes, I grant you that concession. There is good and evil. Then he says, Ravi says, um, if there is good and evil, then you must agree with me that there is a moral law on the basis from which to differentiate evil from good. The atheist guy says, oh yes, I'm even willing to grant you that there is a moral law on the basis to differentiate evil from good. And then Ravi now asks that if you say there is a moral law on the basis to differentiate evil from good, you must therefore posit, you must show, you must render an account of a moral lawgiver, because that's whom you're trying to disprove and not prove. Because if there is no moral lawgiver, there is no moral law. If there is no moral law, there is no good. If there is no good, there is no evil. What was your question? And the atheist looks at him and says, then what, again, is it that I'm asking you? He's like, oh, I can't help you if you really can't help yourself. So the, the reason why I brought up this instance is to show you how there are layers to building up an argument, right? And especially with regards to deontology. If you say that there is a moral law, then there has to be a moral lawgiver. Now, don't be deceived, right? You could argue many moral lawgivers. Um, society could be a moral lawgiver. Um, of course, Deus, a supreme being, could be a moral lawgiver. In fact, religion has provided a lot of our moral laws. Therefore, um, fighting the precedence that, you know, a supreme being could be the source of our moral law makes sense as well. Um, and you must understand that for every other moral law or lawgiver, the moral law differs. So it depends on what you're tr trying to justify. Okay? I don't want to digress too much on that level. But again, something we should look closely at is to be free is to determine your own will. Therefore, for others to be free is to determine their own will. What this means is, it ties in closely to where they say you cannot, you cannot use somebody as a means to an end, okay? People are ends in themselves. And if you need people to achieve your own ends, you must make them an end by telling them, okay, this is my end. I need your assistance. In that way, you are respecting the freedom of their own will. And because you are respecting the freedom of their own will, it is now easier for them to deal with you, knowing that they understand what you're trying to do and you're not trying to swindle them or use them as a means to an end. In deontology, it is very important, it is very important, as, in fact, as a matter of focus, that you understand that that clear set of rules 
where these actions are are important or where an action bears its moral value ground should be tied to a source. The ontology says that an act that is not good morally can lead to something good, such as if you shoot an intruder, even though killing is wrong, you get to, uh, to protect your family. Protecting your family is right and it's a duty. Therefore, in that case, you must, you must stick to it. Don't worry. Let me give you like insights on it. I know it's a bit confusing. Let me say it this way. Immanuel Kant's ideology tells us that sometimes we have to act in ways we believe is ethically wrong because the outcome will be good. You could learn more about that in his Kant categorical imperative. In understanding ethics, this is how you see it. You think you know the difference between right and wrong, don't you? Where the idea of right and wrong comes from is a question that stems from a branch of philosophy known as ethics. And ethics can be hard to define since what you think is right or ethical might be very different from what your friends or family think is right and ethical. And this is because there's a difference of understanding the moral lawgiver as well as understanding the moral law spectrum. However, ethics is loosely defined as, as established standard of right and wrong and spelt out what people should and shouldn't do in a society. The rights to have or the rights that people have and the benefits that they should gain from being members of that society. These are the standards we establish that keep us from hurting others because our beliefs, because in our beliefs, hurting others is wrong. From an individual standpoint, this ethics could be defined as our own established standard of right and wrong. Okay? Let's defend deontology versus utilitarianism. Deontology is sometimes best understood when you try to compare it to another social theory. Are you familiar with utilitarianism? Because we just talked about it right now. Utilitarianism is that branch of consequentialism that says that the idea that is the most moral or seems the most right is the one that creates the highest degree of good or happiness for all parties involved. This idea isn't fully spelled out or wasn't fully spelled out until the 19th century. Social theorists like John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham, which are both British classical utilitarians, identified the idea of good with pleasure and believed that people should attempt to achieve the most good for everyone. In utilitarianism, everyone's happiness counts as the same. So, you should consider the rights and needs of that intruder before you shoot him according to Betterman Mill, and maybe tie him up and call the cops or shoot him in a non-fertile location like on a leg. On the other hand, the ontology considered what benefits you and the people you care about, not necessarily what is good for society or anyone else. Kant tells you to shoot the intruder with the intent to kill, even though it is morally wrong because it is your duty to protect your family. Let's pause here. Understand how deontology is a duty-based ethics and how your duty now trumps utility for any other person. Remember that in our, in, our, in our conflict with consequentialism, we said consequentialism allows you to put other people in front of you or before you. Okay? So now look closely. To compare these two philosophies, we can say that utilitarianism says that any act that achieves happiness through consideration of all sides should be considered good. In that, it, for a typical example, not killing the man in your living room but making sure your family is safe. While the ontology states that some actions are still morally wrong, even if the outcome is good, but you should do them anyway because of your sense of duty to others. For instance, in this case, kill the man in your living room because it's your duty to protect your family and it's not your problem what happens to that man. In the ontology, 
actions and outcomes are measured separately, which is not the case in utilitarianism. The ontology states that an act that is not good morally can lead to something good, such as shooting the intruder, even though killing is wrong. You know, shooting the intruder to protect your family, protecting your family is right. According to Kant, morality is affected by rational thought, more so than by emotion. Human nature, which has to tell you to protect your family, has nothing to do with morality, which will tell you that killing is wrong. Because human beings are rational enough to make case-by-case -case decision. Remember, this is the era of enlightenment, also known as the age of reason, where thinkers of the time were moving away from societal confines and morality-based teachings of the Catholic Church towards thinking and acting for themselves. The ideas of the time included studies of the role of citizens in government and society, advances in science, and then the development of an overall belief in man's self-reliance, as opposed to the reliance on God. In our example, that means protecting your family is the rational thing to do, even if it is not morally the best thing to do. I rest my case. Okay? The law must be formed abstract from our interests. This is what the ontology poses. Okay? The law must be formed abstract from our interests. Thus, we must act using pure reason. Let's look at non-consequentialist arguments. Stephen. This is why Stephen's non-consequentialist argument is valid, because a lot of debaters ignore it, and it's a very powerful tool in debate, and it introduces new metrics by which to judge the debate. The part one is to frame it. You have to point out that the other side in the debate has not attempted to justify consequentialism, and this is your, criti your, your criticism to consequentialism. You must also, we live in a world where consequentialism is not automatically universally recognized as the correct moral framework. So like, it means that those who are defending consequentialism really have a lot of burden to prove with regards to that. Humans are not and cannot be used as means to an end. That's what the ontology says. But in consequentialism, you could use humans as a means to an, means to an end. Right? We are not just containers or receptors of utility that can be added by an all-knowing calculator. We have perfectly unique emotions, hopes, dreams, and aspirations which cannot be aggregated in any ways. So that when you're catering for a large amount of people, you are not able to optimally cater for their dreams, hopes, and aspirations in a set of metrics that could be easily aggregatable. Part two is you must understand that humans have inherent value. Okay? Objects are non-living, non feeling and non-thinking item and their purpose is supposed to be used as a aid humans or to aid some other persons achieve certain goal humans have emotions they feel pain they have dreams about what they want for themselves this criteria individually or collectively is what makes us persons we can believe in one of two positions one a that all persons are equally valuable or we can differentiate between the value of persons. If we believe that everybody is equally valuable, you get. So we believe one. We do believe that everybody is equally valuable in the ontology. But if we believed that we can differentiate between the value of persons, then someone incapable of, for example, providing economic output will be con considered less valuable than someone who could. In fact, 
if they could not provide any economic output whatsoever, they could be considered as a net drain on society because they require goods like time, uh, resources, etc. to survive. No doubt we find this conclusion abhorrent. On the other hand, we believe that our value does not come from how useful we are to someone or something else, but it is inherent to us given that we are persons. Okay? So understand how we have, our, we have inherent values. Okay? And understand that this inherent values does not come because of our economic viability. It comes from our uh, person in ourselves. Like It comes from our personage or our persona as humans. Part three, let's look at the separateness of persons and then look at direct and indirect clashes. Because individuals are separate, unique in the way they dream, in the way they think, in the way they act, in their hopes and in their aspirations, each person's happiness and suffering is unique to them. So we cannot counterweigh someone else's suffering with my happiness as the two are com completely different things that are unique to each individual. Okay? So first thing, remember, the first part what we did was we created the frame, right? In the frame, we showed how humans are separate and how um, we have dreams and aspirations that cannot be aggregated, right? We cannot be used as means to an end. That is in challenging, uh, in challenging the norms of uh, consequentialism using the concept of the ontology. But B, we show that humans have inherent value and that value does not come from anything external, but it's an internal value. And part three, we say that our happiness cannot be weighed against someone else's suffering because the two are completely different things that are unique to each individual. Okay? Let's look now at the direct and indirect clashes. One of them is definite infringement of rights, okay, or suffering versus a definite benefit. Whenever you're dealing with um, the ontology, you must create a line. You must create a dichotomy between definite infringement of rights, how people, people's rights will be infringed on, or how people's sufferings will be ameliorated, and an indefinite benefit. How do you weigh the benefit on one end to the benefit of the other end? It's a thing of waiting. What capacity would you say that alleviating my suffering, you know, or granting me happiness should, should be... What capacity do you think granting me happiness should correlate with granting someone else suffering so that you can provide that happiness for me? Those are the class you have to look at, okay? In opposing a non-consequentialist case, right, these are some of the things we should note. And it's really important that we, we really get to note them. First, consent. If the, if the people whom we are trying to obtain rights from or goods from to distribute to others or are people who consent to it like if we have consent for using people as a means to an end then that makes them an end in and of themselves so it's not going to be a problem right but again in opposing non-consequentialist case you really do not care about in, uh, people do not really care about intentions saying that their life is the most important yeah. Individuals have equal and inherent worth, 
we can add that up rather than the subjective utilities of each individual, right? The only way we can make any real comparison or decision whatsoever is to add these utilities or add this worth of, in, uh, of each uh, individual. So, for instance, saying that um, an individual is a single self-supporting unit of life, an individual has things that are unique to them, an individual has sufferings that are unique to them, and an individual, therefore, should be viewed in such spectrum as equal to another individual based on their inherent worth, right? So, if you say individuals have equal inherent worth, what we add that up together. So, if you say um, you're going to sacrifice one person to save one million person, the question is, would you do that? Would you not do that? It's absurd, right? So what you do is you concede the principle. You say that, listen, while you could sacrifice one person to save one million persons, it doesn't still change the fact that sacrificing one person is a wrong thing to do. The next thing we want to look at is right analysis. Okay? What are rights? And what are these cl clinical standards for morality? Rights are cl clinical standards for morality. So, the codification of the insight that certain actions will lead to bad outcomes, which people fail to predict. So, if you tell people what religion to follow, it is going to be very bad. And this is because they have a right to religion, right? It's going to be very bad because either they will feel sad because they cannot express themselves, or they will resist. And you have things like holy wars, inquisitions, and jihads, and all of those things. So for you to um, establish their right is to give them that freedom to pick their religion. What are these rights? Most of the times, breaking these rights is bad, even if you think that in one particular situation it is justifiable. For instance, if you say that a parent forcing their child to go to church, you know, if they are a Christian, that's like a justifiable instance of breaking the child's right to religion. But again, you must look at the counter perspective. The counter perspective is what happens? What happens when you know, this child has to choose a religion that is separate from the moral or religious spectrum of the parent? There's going to be a very huge clash. But again, because this is a child and the child is under custody with the parents, therefore this child should be allowed, this child should be inculcated into the moral spectrum of the parent or the guardians whatever that may be. So it might, they might be Hindus, they might be Buddhists, whatever it is. Let's say this. Um, say, for instance, that you are some, some kind of monarch. You see that imposing a certain religion upon people has had bad outcome. But you think that you have discovered the absolute truth. And as such, it is justifiable for you to impose it of peop on people. Would you do this? Should you do this? You know that imposing rights on people or imposing religion on people is bad, but you have discovered the ultimate truth and an ultimate religion. For instance, um, maybe Sanatan Dharma, which is called the ultimate religion in India, which, you know, the religion of the universe and of, you know, of all things being God and all of that. Let's assume you, assume you, you realize that that is the absolute truth. Is it justifiable for you as a monarch to impose it on your people? 
So it's more like this. Doing X has failed to generate good consequences. Even if very smart people thought it wouldn't. So having right can protect us from a tyrannical state or a purely consequentialist decision. Okay? You see fascism, or you could check on fascism for more examples on that. Very smart people thought that, you know, certain things like um, uh, government being overly paternal paternalistic is good because it enables government to do things like herd immunity, you know, and this is part of the reason why things like even vaccines cannot be expressly forced on entire populations, right? Because of the weight of these laws. So even if you find out these vaccines can help, what you have to do is encourage the population to take these vaccines because they have a right to their own body. And even though you're a government, you do not interfere with them. So in this case, rights protect us from tyrannical states or purely consequentialist decision. A purely consequentialist decision is, you know what, everybody takes the, take the vaccine. It doesn't matter whether you have blood clots or it doesn't matter if it was at the early point of trials. Everyone just take the vaccine and you make it very, very compulsory. So while that might not be what everybody wants to do, they will not be forced by military action to do it or by the denial of certain privileges that are accruable to a citizen. So, only in very exceptional cases can the state infringe upon rights. Okay? See self-ownership and being in prison for committing murder. In the case of being in prison for committing murder, it's very easy. The state is encroaching on your rights because, again, all rights have limits. And where my rights end is where your own rights begin. So it's very important that um, the state, in protecting the rights of people and in settling conflict or in its role of conflict resolution, gets to put a limit to your own rights. So, for instance, when you take someone's life, the state can uh, either take away your rights to association, freedom of movement, and all of that. The state can infringe on your freedom consequently. Let's look at typical examples of utility versus categorical imperative. And I said this before. This was like our opening class. Killing somebody and giving their organs to 10 people appeal to what seems like utility for judges, right? You can also claim that torture can be argued that it creates higher utility. But again, torture is still wrong. So you cannot say because torture creates higher utility. There's also this scenario where, like the early one I gave you, where um, there are bombs planted over the city and you need certain codes. You catch a terrorist and you have kept that terrorist under interrogation. If you torture the ter terrorist, there are chances that he will give you that code. Could you still go ahead to torture the terrorist? So, torture can be argued that it creates higher utility, right? But torture is still wrong. So that's one thing you should note. Rights have some sum of universality that makes them work and protect us from purely consequentialist uh, actions of the state and of others. Let's go into types of rights. There are negative rights, which are liberty rights, freedoms that you have and most people can exercise without the help of states or the state-only framework. For instance, freedom from torture. You don't need, you know, um, you, can, you don't need the states to send you state troopers for you to know that you are free from, you should, be, you should have freedom from torture. Okay? 
that's a negative right are rights you can implement on your own. You don't need the help of the state to implement it. Positive rights are now benefit rights. Negative rights are liberty rights, right? So your freedom. For instance, if the police stops you unnecessarily, you know that you have your right, your liberty, your freedom of movement. You don't need to have to take them to court first. It's something you can just enforce on your own. Listen, I have the right to be free. You cannot detain me beyond one hour. Uh, and if you have nothing to charge me with, I must live here right now. That is you exercising your negative or your liberty rights, your self-enforceable rights. Positive rights are benefit-based rights, right? Or benefit rights. They are freedoms that require active involvement of the states for them to exist. Example of positive rights is like education, right to education. If the government does not insist, a lot of people are going to have kids and not send those kids to school. They will have those kids rather hawking and stuff like that. So the state comes in and says, you know what, this education is the right of the child. Okay, we are going to create free education for primary to secondary schools. And then there is going to be a law that if any child that is beyond, be, uh, below the age of 16 or beyond, be, be, let's say below the age of 18, if any child below the age of 18 is not in school from morning to 4 p.m., okay, and is found around that time hawking or does not attend school, then the person's parents will be charged to court and possibly imprisoned or fined or the guardians or the custodians. So you see, while that child has right to education, it needs the state to build infrastructure, to create the laws that enables him to go to school, to create a safe environment to allow that to happen. So that is right. Okay? Looking closely at property, theft, and tax. In property, you say something like, I am the owner of myself, my labor, and therefore what I produce through my labor is mine. I put effort, skills, times into producing something so that that thing should now be mine. Property is the basic incentive for people to do anything in life, at least for most people. Should property rights be absolute, given that we are born unequal and we inherit unequal amounts of goods? This is another thing that should be noted. For instance, can someone hold patent rights for if there is a drug that cures... Um, all universal illnesses, right? Should somebody be allowed to hold the patent right for that drug? That's a question you could ask on that property right. And you could be, exactly, it depends on how you could argue on both sides of this, this spectrum. You could be right. These are debates that are really open to be had. Next thing. The Les Miserables principle. Number one. A person dying of hunger, very poor, steals a loaf of bread from a very rich person. Basically, the difference it makes with a rich person is zero, but it keeps the poor person alive. Is theft in that instance justified? Is theft in that instance justified? Two, if yes, then where does this stop? Where is the limit? Say you have 1,000 PlayStations and, you don't have any, and I don't have any toy. Am I not that okay? I am not dying, but the difference between me and you, okay, the difference it makes to you is still negligible if I took one. Is theft justified to the same level? How do we decide where theft will stop being justified? Either partially or fully justified. What will now turn out if we start breaking basic principles in society? 
the society's order will now tend to fall apart. And that's why we need to, the states to redistribute resources. We don't trust individuals to make these decisions and individuals don't trust each other if they know there's no general standard by which each other should be held. Okay? Remember, we done property, we went to theft. We, we done why properties, why property should be owned, right? Or why people should have rights to property. Then, for theft, we are now weighing theft, okay? In this case, we looked at the rich person who had a thousand loaves of bread and the poor person whose life needs to be saved by that one loaf of bread. Is it justifiable that he steals that bread? If you have a thousand PlayStations, I don't have any toy. I'm not dying. My family is not dying. But is it still justified that I steal, steal the one from you? Despite the fact that your uh, PlayStation you know, loss of one might be negligible to you. Okay, now tax. If we agree that your ability to have property is secured by the existence of a framework which is provided by the state, then the state needs resources. So tax is necessary for property to be enforced. From this point in this speech, you begin to understand why, you know, the state exists and why tax is justified, okay? So if people tell you, uh, if people are trying to write off tax in an argument, understand the reason why tax exists. Tax exists because properties need to be protected. If properties need to be protected, they need to be protected by a framework. That framework cannot exist in a vacuum because people do not trust each other to do it, and they don't trust individuals to do it, especially if they know there's no general standard, and the state establishes that general standard. Therefore, the states will need funding to establish that framework, and that funding can only come from tax. Do we get that? Okay. If we agree that our ability to have property is secured by the existence of a framework which is provided by the state, then the state needs resources, so tax is necessary for property to be enforced. If you argue that the state is there to enforce benefit rights, not only liberty rights, then it also needs resources to do so. You are not the sole owner of what you produce because the state provides you with the means by which to produce those things, which is one justifiable reason why people should pay tax, right? So is it justifiable for the state to ask for something in return? Uh, I'm just going to leave that to you. There is a difference between fully owning yourself and fully owning your labor. This is why slavery is forbidding, but employing people is not. So on another level, another level of justification for taxation, right? You could say there is a reason why there's a difference between owning yourself and then that's fully owning yourself and fully owning your labor. Fully owning yourself is autonomy, okay? Fully owning, owning your labor is um, property rights, again, which is enforced by the state. So slavery is forbidden because you can own yourself and you cannot own another person, okay? However, because your labor cannot be fully owned by you, it is why employing people is not forbidden. Because when you employ people, you are taking their labor, okay? And you are owning their labor as a result. So if you could own someone else's labor, it means your own labor too could be owned by the state, mm. which is what justifies it. You don't own your abilities, right? There's a lot of chance in your abilities, status, and property, and social background. Mm. Taxing is not stealing. 
the state is justified into redistributing value. And that redistributing of value is done by taxation. How to justify tax too? You are not the owner of your abilities in the sense that a lot of what you are capable of doing is dependent on where you were born, your genes, your cultural norms, the society you were exposed to, the kind of education you got, the kind of environment in which that education came, and so on. So, because of this reason, you are not the owner of your abilities in that sense. Therefore, the government in which you had existed in, or government, must allow, who creates the enabling environment for your ability to thrive, must benefit from it. So we have created such, uh, we have created ideas such as property and value. The state is not some big bad wolf, right? Our organization takes the form of the state. We need these concepts like taxation for a society to be able to function. Tax is not theft. It's just the state redefining what having a property means. Let's look at individual liberties. In individual liberty, an argument for individual liberty is individuals have uh, non-objective values. Individual knows best about what they value. And individuals experience uh, their own life and have greater ownership over themselves. Experiences felt on individuals' level has no pool of utility. So even if you sacrifice one person's utility for another person's own, you are not ensuring that, you know, there is a higher pool of utility. Okay? You're just basically sacrificing one person's utility for the others. In individual, sorry, in individual liberty, when you're arguing against individual liberty, you should look at children and irrational behavior, like drinking beer, for instance, and information asymmetry. Basically, buy into the idea that people are not always in the position to make good decisions. Okay, so that if you have, if you grant absolute individual liberty to people, there are children who do not have the rational or the information uh, symmetry to prove to process uh, liberties. Therefore, they could take it out of context and out of proportion. And people are not always in the position to make uh, um, decisions. So. Again, individual liberties are probabilistic because there are a lot of harms. Generally, action will result in harm when you allow people to have too much of individual liberty, which is why the state exists to protect people from others, thereby creating a finite level of liberties. Society in general, okay, have mutual constraints, so the state has to balance them. Remember where they say, my right ends where yours begins, and yours begins where mine ends. Sometimes the lines are not that clear. I mean, I might want to amplify my power, and that comes to interfere with your rights. Then we need the state to straighten things out. Why do we need the state? And this is the last part of what, we, what we're doing today.
we need to state for our assessment. If you're a lawyer here, or if you know about the Jean Van Jean case versus PlayStation, you will understand this issue very clearly. Some structure that impose restrictions are necessary, and then trade-offs are possible only through the framework of the state. Okay? The state must impose restrictions on your right because we have established earlier on that individual liberties come in conflict all the time. If there are no restrictions, it's going to be a problem. The possibility of trade-offs means that, okay, I can say you have right to my property, right, provided that um, you do so and so thing for me. So, for instance, say you pay me. In that way, I am trading off my right to my property to you for a certain period of time, if it's a rent or if it's on lease, for you to trade off your right to your financial resources to me, or a portion of that right. So, understand again where trade-offs become possible. Because people are afraid of each other, and this, is back, this ties back to social contract theory, because people are afraid of each other in society, you know, they form a government that kind of protects them from each other. What that means is that everybody aggregates a portion of rights from each individual and bestows it on the sovereign. The sovereign in this case is going to be the state, right? That state, they have, in that case, they have traded off certain of their rights for protection from the state. Thomas Hobbes, in Hobbesian version of social contracts, you know, some people use this, but it has some use, but it has problems, of course. Because some people say, of course, that, listen, there is no time where we sign the social contracts with any state, okay? We are born into it. And because we are born into it, our own wills were not considered, okay? And then some people always say that, yes, 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 you guys argue about, you know, social contracts, but the truth is that you say in the absence of social contract that everybody will be in the state of nature where society breaks down and there's anarchy unleashed. What if that state does not actually exist? So some people actually say maybe the state of nature does not actually exist, etc. So, however, there are, pro there are actions like there are collective action problems, and then we have environmental regulation. Okay, we all want clean water, but we all pollute just a little. And because we do that, uh, we need to be held by some standard. This is why governments are important. If you allow everybody, you get companies will not be regulated. It means that our waterways, they will dump a lot of um, chemical waste in the waterways. Um, people who are going to be drilling for oil will create spillage and there will be no compensations. Companies who are um, making cement using Portland and gypsum under our very soils would use uh, up arable lands and create scarcity and starvation, and there will be no compensation whatsoever to individuals. So you see, these things will never happen until the state itself comes up to ensure that we are protected from ourselves and from those around us. So that's like how collective action problems necessitate the uh, existence of government.
Okay. The state might fail in cases where checks and balances do not exist. Okay, but the state exists with checks and balances, and that's why you have, like, in the case of democracy, you form and reform the government or reform the state over a while. There are some people who have, you know, their states have inactivity, and inactivity is worse for government. I mean, I think a government better be doing bad than being inactive. And you could see, like, the cases of Somalia, for example, that will give you, like, a very deep insight into what we have uh, outlined so far. So the quiz I had had you guys do today was look at um, the categorical imperative. That was the first thing I told you to check. Check for categorical imperative. Okay. Uh, what does that categorical imperative mean? Zoom in on that. Also, um, the second thing I wanted you guys to do was in checking... Uh, after checking for category, uh, categorical imperative, was in checking this PlayStation example. Jean Van Lijen is spelled J-E-A-N, Jean Van Jean, is V-A-N-L-J-E-A-N. So Jean Van Jean's case versus PlayStation. Go in, check some details into that. And finally... Um, there was this motion, a Ulysses Pact or Ulysses Contract is a freely made decision that is designed and intended to bind oneself in the future. Examples of this decision include, but are not limited to quitting smoking, losing weight, or length. Um, the, 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 it is longer, I think the, the, the Ulysses Pact is longer. If I could get the motion, I'll give, give, it, give it to you guys so you guys get to practice it out out with that we've come to the end of um our class today do we have any questions i know we might be dying for questions i had to rush through so that we finished because we had some break in the middle so i had to make sure i rushed through and we get done today so that we could prepare for saturday next week do we have any questions so far Do we have any questions? This is time for questions, and the questions might not necessarily only have to be about this class. It has to also be, it could also be about other classes that we've had uh, over time. Please also remember that we have, we have had access, uh, we've created a WhatsApp group that you could have access to. Uh, it's on the text space, um, pasting it again once more. Uh, so please kindly join the WhatsApp forum so that, oh, beautiful. Success has put it up as well. Kindly join the WhatsApp forum. That way we'll be able to, uh, grant you guys information going forward. We need to make sure we gather in one place so that it will be easy to communicate and we could know how to spread our adverts. Okay. So it's on the text space here. This class will be available for podcasts uh, also uh, with uh, debates from scratch. 
podcast. Okay, so Jonathan says he learns a lot today. Thanks. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Uh, could you tell us some of the things you learned? Could you kindly unmute and speak? This is the time when you guys get to speak. Okay? All right, I have a question about the ontology. If it's okay. Yeah, go ahead and ask. So I want to be sure. It's more like I'm asking to know if I'm right. So with the ontology, we, you tend to look at what a person, a person's own decisions, right? A decision someone makes regardless of morality or regardless of what is seen right with other people. So in a natural sense, this concept of the ontology uh, defies, defies morality, right? So I make a decision of what it is. For example, if a thief has come inside my house, is going to kill my kids, and I am a law enforcer, I am a lawyer. I know that killing is wrong, but I go ahead to kill him for the greater good, right? So I tend to look to the greater good of my own. So it is something that is more selfish, right? Then, then I, want us to, I want you to help me depreciate this concept of the, of the, the sorry, the names are kind of hard, yeah? The theology and the very first one, of course, questionalism, right? Because to me, I thought that the, the second... The second one of the geology is more individualist, individualistic than post-questionalism is more of happiness by a bigger group of people. So I want to get the difference and want to understand the geology quite well. If you could summarize, I'm, I'm down for that. Okay, that's great. Um, so in the case of, in the case of um, conse um, consequentialism, we are saying we want an outcome that favors the mass or the highest amount of people, right? So that creates utility for the highest amount of people. And it doesn't matter with special considerations. That is for um, consequentialism, uh, especially with regards to utility. It doesn't matter if it is my mother in the next room, okay? Uh, if someone has to go for other people, if someone has to die for other people to live, okay? If, assuming that living or life is that utility, then, of course, that person should die, irregardless of the best or personal considerations. But with regards to deontology, in the case of deontology, we, I have a personal duty to myself. Like you see, in the instance you use, you're in your family, right? So it doesn't matter if it was, like, maybe, let's say, you and your two kids were home, and the thief comes into the house, and that thief is um, armed, and you could kill that entire thieves, right? You could kill all of them. It, because of the duty, even though killing is wrong, okay? Because of the duty you have to your family, you do it anyways. In consequentialism, we say, oh, killing is wrong, but because of the happiness that will be obtained, we should kill. This happiness should be a happiness that should be available for a wider amount of people, okay? This happiness should be, it's like, um, consequentialism justifies things like taking away the right of an individual so you can amplify or maximize the right of other individuals. While deontology, on the other hand, says anything that is right is going to be right based on a set of ethics or a set of duties, or a set of laws, or a set of rules. So the question in deontology is, who do I owe the higher uh, degree of loyalty is it myself my family or the society so even though it is bad to kill 
I'm going to have to kill these people because in killing them, I am fulfilling the duty of protecting my family. Because I owe my family that duty. Do you get? There could be more on it. Um, remember again, what we are doing is that we are taking some more people. We've not even got into the main advance. Like if we if we need to go into this, um, going through deontology, going through rights, all of this, uh, that will be available during our debate masterclass. And you should watch the space. And this is why I said everybody should be on the WhatsApp group. You should watch the space because the content we are going to be giving out would include not just deontology, but we will break deontology down to its basics and run it on a larger scale to cover all the possible things it could cover. We will also be running things like paternalism down to its... Paternalism is justification for um, intrusion or acting on the stead of other persons. We would also look at um, the general will, social contract, uh there are many many of them it's almost inexhaustible but the idea is that when you're done with these classes you would have you know levels from where to think from you have a bank of information to think from in accessing uh people in accessing the understandings uh of debates in accessing arguments to be used and utilized effectively in debate rooms and elsewhere so sorry, was I able to answer your question? Did I answer your question? Yeah, I'm good, I'm good. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, do I have any other person uh, with a question in the house? Hello? Um, can you hear me? Yes, clearly I can. Okay, so I have a question, or maybe it's like a um, commentary. I'm not so sure how to phrase it exactly. So it's, um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on these principles, particularly the ontology. Now, the example that you gave about the intruders uh, having a duty to protect your the principle of the ontology, like you um, said many times, is basically ethics and rules and duty-based, wherein your actions should be in service of some ethics, rules, or a sense of duty. Now, I just wanted to ask if maybe if this principle, because everything that's been explained doesn't seem to accommodate this aspect, or maybe there's another principle that brings this into consideration. Let's ask about context. I mean, it's been a split of action versus Bringing it back to the example of having intruders in your house and then being faced with a decision where either you um, disable this um, intruder, preserving their life, but also uh, fulfilling duty to protect your family. Now, imagine a situation where I'll bring it down to. Let me not use a real life example. You are aware that the um, justice system you have in your society isn't exactly um, strong. So you know if you disarm these intruders or you disable them, chances are they are going to be freed at some point and they will seek retribution. I mean, you mentioned earlier on that humans are rational enough to make um, decisions on a case-by-case -case basis. Ordinarily, you have the option to disarm them and you also have the option to kill them. Now, would it be 
would it be safe to say that approaching um, a discussion like this purely from a deontological perspective isn't um, enough to gauge the morality or the ethicality of certain decisions, especially for deontology. I'm very specific about deontology because it was stressed that actions will be judged based on their um, service in a sense of duty or ethics or rules. I mean, you are fulfilling your duty to protect your family, but um, during the option, choosing to um, end the life of these intruders, you also made the decision knowing fully well that choosing not to do that and choosing the other option would, in a sense, be you not fulfilling your duty to your family because they will still be in danger. If you disarm the intruders and you hand them over to the authorities, you know, because you are aware of the context of your society, you know they will be freed at some point and they will most likely seek retribution. So how do you, how do you, I don't know, how do you harmonize this? How do you reconcile these points of views? Is there some subset of the ontology that takes into cognizance the influence of context? Or is there some other principle that um, takes into consideration this aspect? I, I guess that's um, my question. I hope it was um, clear enough. Thank you. Sorry, I was having a hard time hearing you, but you're asking, how do I harmonize something? It's, it's tough. I really did not hear you, and I was putting it in the text. I don't know if it was only me, or it's with other people. There was a very huge static. In it, focus is break. Yeah. This is yeah, I think the network is Yeah, I can't hear you very well. The network seems to be choppy again. Hello, am I audible? Am I audible? Yes, but the connection isn't strong. You are breaking.
Am I audible? Yes. Okay, so please, can you take your, your question again? I'm so, so sorry. Okay, like from the very beginning, did you get any aspects of the question? Uh, it started getting static when you were like, um, based on the examples that we had raised, then I think it cleared up as a, as a certain point where you were asking, can I harmonize uh, something? Those are like yes. the that were clearer to me. Okay, I was asking, at what point does um, do these principles give the opportunity to reconcile the effect of context on um, the choice of action? The example I was, the illustration I was um, given was in the case of the intruder. Now, ordinarily, you said that the choice to kill the intruder while morally wrong, would be considered um, acceptable because it was done in service of um, due sense of duty to protect your family and loved ones. But also, you made mention of the option of simply this, um, taking into consideration the rights of the um, intruders to live, to... Um, basically to continue to live and you choose the option to instead disable them or disarm them. Now, I'm saying that considering the fact that human beings, we make rational decisions on a case-by-case -case basis based on the information available to us. You, in that scenario, you are aware not just of the current situation you are in and its implications for the safety of your family, you are also aware of the broader context of the society in which you live in and the consequences of your choice. Sorry. Sorry. I think the network is bad again. I can hear you, but the network is... You know what? Um, maybe I'll just... Um, I can always raise the question some other time. I guess it's fine. I don't think the network is um, very strong right now. I'm going to assume that this is better now. Uh, if if I heard you, if I heard you, and me trying not to let us go uh, back and back into the questions. So you said, um, where where is the place for considering special um, scenario or the context of the problem or the context of the dilemma? You know, the context of the dilemma. We that's it, right? basically okay so i think the context of the dilemma would be would be considered if the case is to be tried so for instance when you have the case of um you versus your family right you could you could you could immobilize the the thief or whoever is the assailant in your house those are options but even if you choose to kill that person you will not uh, while it is morally wrong you are duty bound to protect your family. You get. Uh, think. Do you have the skill set and the confidence? Because if you have to consider special considerations in principle, at least why special considerations were not prioritized on the list. If you have to consider it, it would weigh in on um, many other special considerations. So one, do you have the skill set 
to successfully immobilize the assailant without killing the assailant? Two, do you have the time to immobilize the assailant? I mean, do you have just one clear shot and that clear shot is it? Okay, because if you do, then it makes sense that you use that clear shot to kill the person, right? So in special considerations, the table could turn anyways, but with principles, we are, we are trying to achieve a metric, you know, a metric by which, you know, this action can be justified or not justified. In court, yes, we could debate special considerations. We could just debate special instances and stuff. And it's why a lot of people get, get away with a lot of stuff. But when looking at a principle in itself, you must assume that principle at its strongest. So let's assume that even though, you know, um, let's assume that the person came into the room, even though other things could be done, this guy owes a sense of duty to kill him. It's almost the same thing as saying we, got, we went to war, right? Uh, do you owe it? Because you're in war, you're defending the interest of your country. You are duty-bound to your country. Would you say because... Um, uh, I have the option of shooting the guy on his leg, I should take that option, right? What is the guarantee that if you shoot the guy on his leg, he doesn't just plant a bullet in your head? Because these are all other things to consider as well in a special scenario. For, for the person to justifiably require, for that intrusion to justifiably require that you kill the person, it means that to some extent, the person was a danger and a huge threat to you, most probably armed. And then how would your reaction to that be? So, but with regards to the ontology, right? It's about the rightness of an instance, even though the act is morally wrong. How do you justify certain acts that are morally wrong, okay? You can justify certain acts that are morally wrong if the carrying out of those acts is in duty to a person or a country or so on. So as long as that action is duty-based, we don't care the consequences. Someone died at the end of the day, Okay. And this is why it's in contrast to utilitarianism. I think this is where the whole broad uh, this, the spectrum becomes clearer. In utility, we say, listen, we don't care what the action is, right? What we care is the outcome of that action. You know, the outcome before that action and the consequences after that outcome. In deontology, we say we don't care that this act is right or wrong, okay? And even though this is a wrong act, because this act was done in service, in service to duty because this we're duty bound to do this act we'll go ahead and do it anyways does that clear it yes i think that's a satisfactory answer thank you very 